I didn't know getting into this how slutty we would be. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Well, hey there. It's so nice to have you here again. Welcome back to the podcast that is better than most dating apps because almost every one of my guests is a keeper, the Rasafari Podcast. And yes, I'm real proud of that one. I'm excited to have you back here for an episode that focuses both on conservation and on zookeeping. Before we get to that, I want to thank everyone who participated in my Red Panda Network fundraising effort. Together, we raised over $500 for that amazing organization, and I am so grateful and so proud. I'm always a little nervous when I do something like that, because there's always that fear of, what if this fails? What if I don't raise enough money? And let's be honest, every single dollar helps, so even if I only raised a small sum, it would have been more than fine. But what y'all came together to do really impressed me. Speaking of impressing me, (sighs) Mom, he did the bad transition thing again. You can do so by making sure you're subscribed to the podcast and leaving me a five-star rating and possibly even a review. I'll also be impressed if you're following Raw Safari on Facebook and Instagram at Raw Safari. You can also buy some merch at rawsafari.redbubble.com and most of all, It would impress the heck out of me if you decided to support the podcast as a monthly patron at patreon.com slash rawsafari. Like, I would be super impressed. Sticking with the word impressed, I think you're going to be incredibly impressed with my guest this episode. I'm bringing you my interview with Dave Johnson, the executive director of the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund and a pachyderm keeper in Denver, Colorado. Most of the conservation organizations I know of have a laser focus on one animal. Red Panda Network, Okapi Conservation Fund, Giraffe Conservation Fund, the incredible Penguins International, where my former guest and good friend Katie Prop works. She actually gets a shout-out in this episode. They all focus on one species or family of animals and work hard to conserve them. The Katie Adamson Conservation Fund, however, works all over the globe, helping to save a variety of species. We talk about the pros and cons of that approach to conservation, go into a ton of details about some of the cool conservation projects Dave is a part of, and get into some discussions about being a pachyderm keeper. Oh, Dave is also an author, and he'll tell you about how he's using his children's books to help inspire the next generation of conservation warriors. You know, I'm glad the theme of this intro was impressed, because Dave is a heck of an impressive guy. So, without further ado, here is my interview with zookeeper and conservationist extraordinaire, Dave Johnson. All right, so, Dave, thanks for being here. Uh, Tell me who you are and um, where you work and what you do there. Well, my name is Dave Johnson. And I am a uh, pachyderm zookeeper out in Denver, Colorado, and I've been doing that for 22 years. I'm a self-professed animal nerd. Uh, just this all I wanted to do since I grew up is, is work in some capacity with animals. I'm sure that's a story of a lot of keepers. i uh, been working with them since I was 15 at the Nature Center in North Carolina where I grew up. You may catch a twinge of an accent every now and then. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Um, but I also started a, a, a conservation organization known as the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund about six years ago. So it's a, I kind of uh, walk uh, both walks right now, uh, the zookeeping field and the conservation. I love that so much. And I want to talk about both sides of that. But let's start off with the uh, Katie Adamson uh, Conservation Fund. Um, I'm noticing that your name is Dave Johnson. And last time I checked, that's different than Katie Adamson. So go ahead and tell me the story about the name of this uh, organization. 
Well, um, I uh, am an advisor for our Zoo Explorer Scouts, and I've been doing that my whole career. And uh, so had the opportunity of meeting a lot of wonderful um, young people aged 14 to 21 that are wanting to do something uh, in, in our profession. You know, maybe they want to be a veterinarian. Maybe they want to be a, a zoo vet tech or a keeper. Um, and so I got to meet Katie Adamson. Uh, she joined our, our uh, zoo crew at the zoo first and then became a zoo explorer. Um, and uh, throughout her career, she kept uh, engaging a little bit more, John, and she became an intern and then a paid intern in the primate department. Um, sadly, when she was up at CSU uh, in college at Colorado State University, she she came down with a Ewing sarcoma, uh, a cancer that took her from us. And uh, so instead of uh, instead of just sitting by, I decided that we should do something in her name and in her honor uh, with our community. And so I went to her mom and dad and uh, we, we made this uh, organization and have been just growing it for the last six years in her name. Well, that's absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I'm I'm sorry for your loss, obviously, but um, it's amazing that she was able to inspire you so much, especially with the whole career doing this kind of thing. To be that inspired by one person, what a what an amazing legacy to leave behind. And I love that you're carrying that on. Very well, thank cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It, the the big thing is, um, you know, she she really wanted to be a zookeeper. She wanted to go to Nepal. She wanted to go with us. Never got well enough battling with her cancer and her chemo to go to Nepal. And so because she fought such a hard fight and just stayed so motivated to the cause is really, you know, what stood out in my mind as somebody that was not going to let, you know, cancer change their opinion or view of the world. And, uh, and I think she just uh, ended up inspiring us to pass on that baton to uh, a lot of the next generation. I, I love that so much. That's, um, you know, that's why I do this podcast. And I think that's why we all do the work that we do is trying to inspire conservation. And uh, that's just a beautiful story. So, you know, I just well, love you. hearing that. Yeah. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what y'all do uh, at the uh, the fund there? Well, uh, started taking people to Nepal. Um, we were opening up a new um, exhibit at our zoo in 2012. Um, and it was going to be Asian elephants, greater one horn rhinos, clouded leopards, saurus cranes, all these species. Um, so I started doing some research and Nepal was the country that really held almost all of them. And so I thought, well, this would be great to get our community engaged, get them invested uh, in some stuff. So in 2010, I led my first trip over with uh, several zoo volunteers that wanted to go with me. There were four of us. And uh, so we just started this, uh, this, connectivity with Nepal and we called ourselves team Nepalorado uh, and it's a it's a fusion of our cultures in the name of conservation and it just caught on in Denver and from four people to 12 people to to 2019 I think we took 24 over uh, we've led 11 trips um, 150 people have gone over and I think it just just gets them so engaged um, being a zoo volunteer, you're talking about human-wildlife conflict. Um, and instead of reading something off a pamphlet or off of the website, you've actually been in country. You've seen elephants that have destroyed crops, and you've seen people that are impacted. And I think it just makes a huge difference, John, in the community of people being able to um, to follow their passions as well. That's incredible. And so the the focus on the trip then is just being over there and, and seeing and experiencing this stuff? That's what it started out as being. Of course, though, um, you know, you kind of when the fun got into play, it ended up being problem solving and it ended up um, let's help them with beehive fences. Let's help them. Uh, there's a children's orphanage that are all dealing with wildlife conflict. You know, they've all lost parents to elephants or cobra or tiger. Um, and let's get engaged more. Let's give them school scholarships. Let's uh, let's get them beehives so they can make honey for sustainability. So the Chapong community doesn't feel like they have to poach rhinos. So we were tasked with uh, tasked with some of these things. And so it's just been a, a group of people going over and problem solving and just continuing the, um, the, the connectivity. And it's something that if you do every year, that community always feels engaged. Um, and so from that, we've got soccer tournaments going on in, in Tanzania. 
we've got children doing artwork for us in, in Costa Rica. Um, we've got polar bear community up in Katkovic, Alaska, and I write kids books. So I've written three children's books. I'm working on number four and that helps us, uh, stay engaged with, uh, with everybody, all of our partners around the world. You just said so many amazing things that I, 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 I'm like at a loss here. Okay. So, um, first of all, let's, let's dial it back to Nepal for a second and, um, tell me about, uh, you were talking about the, um, beehive fences. Explain that to me. Well, it started off being just a sustainable project with just creating, um, ways for them to make money. If we buy the hives, if we train people to make beehives, um, that they then can have something other than poaching um, in the Chapon community. What came out of it turned out to be uh, Lucy King with Save the Elephants in Kenya was doing an auditory study, and she found out that elephants just hate bees. You know, it's uh, and so that led to um, her starting up in Kenya near Samburu, uh, building fences of beehives, um, having a cable between them, John, and to where every ten meters there's a there's a beehive. And uh, if the elephant tries to go in between them, it hits a cable and then you're you're getting two hives angry at you. Hey, y'all. Time for a quick interrupting. John, uh, David and I were having some Zoom audio issues here, so I'm worried that this project might have gotten lost in translation. So just as a quick recap, basically what happens is elephants don't like beehives. They don't like bees. And so um, they came up with the idea of building these fences that connect beehives, which can both help the citizens of this area raise money so they don't have to do poaching by having and selling honey, and also will keep elephants away because one of the big reasons that poaching happens along with trying to raise money is because of human-animal conflict. By keeping the elephants away from the humans through using bees— there is no chance for that conflict, or at least a lessened chance. So it's a pretty innovative solution. Okay, back to the interview. So, um, so that's just uh, how this is developed is into not only sustainability, but into protecting people, protecting their crops, protecting their families. Um, and so that's what we're doing in Nepal and in Uganda and in Tanzania now. Uh, but it all started out with just wanting to do something for the bees and for the community. Um, and that all started in Nepal, our first country. That's absolutely amazing. Um, actually, ironically, as soon as uh, our interview's up, a little bit later today, I'll be interviewing um, somebody from the Red Panda Network, which also does on-the-ground conservation in Nepal. So uh, it, it's really uh, cool. Are you interviewing Terrence? By I today? am, yeah. <laughs> you know Terrence, I take it? I was just on a uh, webinar with him for two hours this morning, so uh, so. I uh, got to tell him about Team Napolarado, so he thought that was a cute, uh, cute little fusion. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Cool. Um, so you said there's an orphanage based entirely on uh, kids that have lost their parents to human-animal conflict in Nepal. Did I hear that correctly? That's correct. Um, wow. We have have a have a contact Vishnu there. That's a he's a wildlife vet tech, and he's been there in. Nepal working at Chitwan National Park since it was started back in the 70s. And he has come into so many, um, come into contact with so many of these kids that have just suffered devastating losses at the hands of wildlife. And him and his wife wanted to do something different. So a few years ago, as he's getting close to retirement from the NTNC, which is the National Trust for Nature Conservation, he started taking in these kids. Um, I know three of them lost lost a mom to a crocodile on the riverbank doing her laundry. Um, some have lost parents to elephants and tigers and different things that, um, you know, you have to live with when you're living in Nepal. And he's got 10 of these kids right now. And uh, we take them uh, stuff every year we go and we're providing school scholarships for them once they enter plus two. Once uh, education gets a little more expensive, we're helping them continuing their education since they don't have their parents. Very cool. And I think that's such a great example of why community 
based conservation is so important. And also, you know, one thing that I talk about a lot in in my personal life is the fact that I feel like conflict. And I don't just mean human-animal conflict. I'm talking human-human conflict, all kinds of stuff, is often based on people not being able to understand what's going on in other people's lives. Like, I can't imagine an orphanage for people who were orphaned because of animals in the United States. That's just not something that I ever would have thought existed. So sharing that that is a thing really helps show not only why uh, animal conservation is important, but how we need to, in order to conserve animals, be helping the humans in those areas. Um, that's really cool. That's I love that. Yeah, I think uh, I think I think when you go over and doing something like this, John, you you go for the animals initially. You know, we we're doing some red panda stuff um, in the eastern part of Nepal, and I sent a couple of keepers over there for the second time this year, um, and we're playing soccer with those guys, and they're doing some red panda art for us, which is pretty special. But uh, what takes you back, what keeps you going, is the 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 human lives that you encounter, and that's what makes it so special. I've got one zoo volunteer. His name is Chuck, Chuck Zobel. And he works with me on Fridays at the zoo. He's been with me 10 of my 11 times. Wow. (laughs) Yes. He's a Nepal junkie. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, how are you able to fund that? Do the volunteers fund their own trips or how, how does that work? Yeah. Most of the time the volunteers do their own trips. Um, and then we try to help, um, students, or zookeepers that are maybe not in that financial spot, we try to help them and get their uh, plane tickets purchased. Um, I use my books. I go to schools, and uh, and we'll use fundraisers. We'll use speakers. Maybe we'll have Terrence do a Zoom for Red Pandas, and all the money that we make through that will go directly to help a zookeeper go work with Red Pandas in Nepal. So just I think it's innovation. And and community based uh, problem solving. And I think the more people that you encounter, uh, the more partnerships are created. And that's just that's been a fun kind of puzzle for me. Like who would have known that I was going to get off of one webinar today with Terrence. Uh, do a zoom with you. And then he was going to follow up with his, his zoom with you later today. So (laughs) small world. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. That's really entertaining. Um, but that's, that's what I've been finding with the zoo world and the conservation world in general. Um, since I started this podcast, half the time I'll, I'll talk to someone and, um, they won't have been recommended by someone I've already interviewed or something. But then during the interview, they're like, wait a minute, I was listening and you did an episode with this person and they're my best friend. And it's just, it's amazing how this all happens. So, Yeah, I, I, I scrolled through your podcast and you've uh, interviewed Katie Prop from Penguins International. Yes, it's her birthday today as I interview you, by the way. So happy oh, birthday, Katie. <laughs> happy birthday, Katie. <laughs> she's but wonderful. Yeah, she's amazing. I was, I was literally yeah. talking to her this morning about going live with me on Instagram soon. So We've got some some potential work in South Africa together with Sankob. Hey everyone, time for a quick interrupting John. I just wanted to quickly explain that Sankob is South African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds. They do a lot of amazing stuff. Their mission statement is just Sankob saves seabirds. And they do a 24-7 rescue service, a rehabilitation service, they rear chicks, they do preparedness and response to oil spills, they have a great education and training department, they do research on seabirds, and they have rangers that are out there working to make sure that seabirds and penguins that are under protection of conservation authorities are properly taken care of. Also, as a side note, Katie Prop did end up doing the Instagram Live with me. It was the night before this episode came out, and you can find that video on my normal feed at Safari. Okay, back to the interview. Uh, sending keepers down there to work with the African penguins and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, so we've we've had beers together. You know, I'm a martyr. I will drink beer with conservationists. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's big of you. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so you've teased me about the books a couple times now. So come on, tell me, tell me about your books. Tell me about your character and uh, and what these books are. Well, I uh, came up with a character when I was a bear biologist up in Alaska. I realized that wildlife biology was not my forte, 
um, I'd be out in the woods for weeks at a time with one other bear curmudgeon. And uh, he didn't want to talk to me. And he just told me to go pan for gold and fish. And so I would read all the books that I had. And I started writing down some things, um, some poems and some ideas, some concepts. I miss the kids. Um, and I came up with this character, Sissy Sally Sassafras. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sissy Sally Sassafras? Yep. Yep. All right. That's I a, like that. That's, yep. So alliterative. Um, the sassafras was my favorite tree growing up in North Carolina. It smells like root beer. And so I thought it would be a fun character to have engage kids um, instead of speaking from uh, a human voice, uh, an adult voice coming at them. It would be more somebody, one of their peers. So she's my main character in these three books. And uh, the first one was about elephants at our zoo in Denver. And then the second one was about a little orphaned rhino in Nepal. Her name was Narayani after the river she was found on. She had a broken leg and a broken hip from the monsoons. She got washed away from her mom. And then the, the last book, John, was called, um, I kind of wanted to keep branching out a little bit farther and farther from home. And the next book was called The Zodiac Kids. And it has a totem animal for all the kids' birthday months. So if you're born in January, your totem is the polar bear. So we try to do something with polar bears for the kids um, that are born in January and got just big um, enigmatic animals for their birthdays, uh, elephant, rhino, tiger, um, penguin, stuff like that, that the kids can can really engage with. And so that's my, my book idea. And the next one I'm writing is called I Am Katie. And it's about Katie passing on that baton to the next generation. And we're going to have it translated into Swahili, Nepalese and Spanish. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Um, quick question. This is this is very important. We're going to get very serious here right now. Okay. My birthday is March, and I'm a kid at heart. So, what would my animal be? Your animal is the orangutan, and oh, uh, that's great. <laughs> and we are actually supposed to be there um, next April, uh, reforesting part of uh, a park in Borneo, and working with uh, orangutan conservation there. We've got 13 people, including several primate keepers from our zoo and several uh, primate volunteers that are going. So yes, your your month is the orangutan. So go with us. Go plant oh, some trees. <laughs> I would love to. That sounds amazing. That's so cool. So you're okay, I have to ask this question. You you're, you know, you're a keeper and that's that's cool and you've done a lot of other stuff clearly. Um how the heck did you figure out how to set up global trips? Cuz I was looking at your website and Y'all are all over the place doing all kinds of amazing work. Like we're barely scratching the surface. We could we could do a month of podcasts. Um, so so how did you figure out how the heck to do this? I think it was uh, it was trial and error. I think it was starting out um, asking some some. There was an author, Hamanta Mishra, who wrote Soul of the Rhino, and I tracked him down. He lives in Virginia now. He's from Nepal. So I utilized him as a resource. I used another um, another uh, scientist that our conservation department got me up with and uh, just started um, picking and choosing some people to go see and some organizations to talk with in Nepal. And uh, and that led me on this journey uh, of, of meeting uh, all these different people that are doing these wonderful things. And I'll tell you, John, one of our best partners is Idea Wild up in Fort Collins. And they have been doing this for 30 years and they get money for conservationists all around the planet. They call them the heroes and sheroes of the world. And if they need small things, um, if they need camera traps, if they need a Garmin GPS system, anything like that, they have people sponsor them. So I started going up. He won their conservationist of the year award at the zoo. And so they're only an hour drive. I go up to their um, to their auctions and I purchase uh, I purchase connections with these guys by giving them the things that they need. And, uh, and then we have this connection in the field that'll take our people out, come and talk to us at the hotel in Kathmandu. Um, it just, uh, it's been a, of immense pleasure to me just to start uh, finding all these connections around the planet. And Idea Wild was a great source for it at first. And now as we've grown, uh, connections come to us. Right, uh, right. That's how it spreads. Very cool. Uh, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by all of this. Um, Thank you, sir. 
Yeah, of course. So let's let's dial it back for a minute. We will come back to conservation, but a lot of the people who are listening right now um, are animal nuts and love conservation, but also want to know a little bit about some some animals. Um, so talk to me about about some of your packies. Well, I got uh, I've been working there for twenty two years, so I've seen a lot of animals. Um, elephants, taper. We have a uh, uh, Malayan taper at our zoo. Uh, black rhinos, greater one horn rhinos. Uh, hippopotamus. Uh, and we have always had Asian elephants uh, since I've been at our zoo. So that's kind of where the Nepal connection came through. So I've worked with those guys for years um, in the Pachyderm building right at the center of our zoo. And our building is, uh, I guess it's about 62 years old now. So it's a little bit of a relic, but uh, a lot of fun working with these guys because, you know, we had a hippo that lived to be 58. His name was Bert. Oh, Bert, <laughs> yeah. you said? Wow. Bert. Bert the hippo, and he fathered 30 baby hippos for us. Um, <laughs> yes, he was getting his groove on, and uh, we actually couldn't stop him from having babies. We tried, but uh, at, at one point in time, I had four hippos in our uh, in our uh, enclosure at the zoo, so that was a lot. Um, but uh, Asian elephants, such an amazing animal to work with. The intelligence, the familial bond, you know, they're so much like us with, uh, with how they their thought processes and, and how, uh, how engaged they are with each other is just, uh, the, the communication style is just amazing. Um, so yeah, so it's been a, a great highlight to my career. I, I grew up working with a bunch of different animals and then I think, uh, you start a small zoo, work with everything. And then I have gone on to be specialized with the, the big thick skin guys. That's awesome. Um, so I have a question. I know that it was only a couple of years ago that the AZA went to f uh, protected contact for elephants. So I'm curious what effect that had on on you as a keeper and if uh, if you are glad that they did that or, or wish they hadn't. I know the Pittsburgh Zoo literally left the AZA over that decision. Um, and the Pittsburgh Zoo is an incredible institution. They really felt they were doing what's best for their animals as the AZA you know, believes they're doing as well um so if you have any thoughts on that i would love to hear them yeah we uh we changed over before it was mandated uh we changed over in 2011 because we were building a bull facility and we just had two old cows left mimi and dolly who had been free contact their whole lives i'd always been a free contact elephant person as well in south carolina and in colorado and the change to me uh created um the uh, I guess the chance to focus more on rhinos and hippos for me. I decided to to train the new elephant guys uh, on uh, protected contact with our girls, and we started getting bull elephants in. And it was a huge facility with a lot of people, and nobody really wanted to work in our old barn anymore that had the black rhinos and the hippos. And it was just um, kind of the scourge of our department. <laughs> But I, I loved that old building and I love those animals. And so I decided to actually go in protected contact was a, a big decision of mine to to change over to uh, to the smaller guys, to to hippos and rhinos. And uh, I just I love the connection with the girls um, free contact. And uh, and I, I just felt like um, things had changed enough for me. I'm kind of in my old school ways that I should probably just uh, take that uh, time to get out. So I was kind of like the Pittsburgh Zoo. <laughs> I, I really and I know a lot of old keepers that were the same way. It, it, it led me on to new paths. That's interesting. Very cool. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, cool. So tell me about. Your tapirs, I love them so much. Um, my first question is: Do you uh, do you do you guys do any breeding? Have you had any watermelons? <laughs> we have. We've had three watermelons uh, <laughs> that are now uh, dispersed around the country. So uh, the the pair that we had in our old building, we never got them to breed. Our uh, our male Mo, we sent him back to uh, the the zoo up in uh, Brooklyn Zoo. Um, and he just, he was more into food than females. And, uh, we started thinking about how to make a grain bag and put it on Maggie's back and maybe, uh, <laughs> and maybe that could entice him to, to breed accidentally. You really are into problem solving, aren't you? <laughs> but this, this new pair that we have, have been, uh, amazing. And, uh, they've had three, three offspring for us and those, yeah, you're right. Those little watermelons are super cute. 
And so, for those listening um, who don't know, can you tell me why we're calling them watermelons? Well, uh, when they're born, they are little squatty round things that have barely any legs and they're striped and spotted and just don't look like their parents at all. But they look like, you know, a cute little watermelon. So uh. <laughs> it's crazy to see. They're like a completely different animal. It's amazing. And when they start fading, just to let you know, the zoo, um, the zoo people get very upset when they have lost their spots and stripes and start looking like a little Oreo cookie, like their parents again. So it's, uh, (laughs) it goes, it's fleeting. It goes fast. It is. I remember, um, a couple years ago, the San Diego zoo, uh, had a baby watermelon and they named it, uh, Don Tapir after, uh, you know, uh, Don Draper. And he was on social media almost daily when he was a watermelon and I got to go see him and he was so cute. And then he just kind of disappeared. And I know it's just because now he just looks like the tape here. <laughs> There's something pretty special about the watermelons. <laughs> yeah. We have, we have some big taper nerds at our zoo that are really uh, into that, into those animals and go to all the zoos that have taper, whether they want to see mountain taper or birds. And it's really interesting. You, you meet some, really uh, wonderful people that uh, come from every walk of life, but all have this different panat- this different connection or different passion for these different species. So it's pretty cool. And if you let them scratch a taper or get to watch a shift or, or get in the back and see one of the watermelons up close, I mean, it is life-changing uh, watching these people so moved by these experiences that zoos can give them um, that they cry. And you know, you've created this bond with them and that species forever. And that's a very powerful, powerful thing for a, for a zookeeper to have is to know that you're making those connections really stick. And, and that is true. Um, I, I won't rehash it all here because I've told the stories on the podcast before, but there, there's a reason that I'm doing this. You know, this costs me money. I'm not making any money off of it yet. Maybe someday, but not yet. And it's a heck of a lot of time. And um, it's because I met an, a bunch of amazing zookeepers and their animals, and it it's life changing, and the the connections I've made and the people that I talk to still some daily, um, it's it's magical. And yeah, the first time that I I fed a red panda or I I scratched a binturong or whatever, just <laughs> I, I I have chills talking about it now, like years <laughs> after the fact. And, and you know, one thing that I thought uh, would happen over time is that as I have these amazing experiences. I thought, you know, it would become second second nature. Nah, hundreds yeah. of them. And every time I'm still the happiest human. And um, the best part is I talk to people like you and you literally every day you're having those experiences and they're yeah. still magical. Yes. Yeah. And I think incredible. with with our career, I think you uh, you you learn that, uh, you know, every every day you're going to learn something new about your animals. You never even after 22 years, I still learn something new every day. And go into it uh, with the utmost appreciation and excitement about the job, you know. And that's that to me. When I tell these these parents that are thinking about letting their kids be explorers, I'm like, hey, we don't make a lot of money. I said, but uh, I love going to work every day, and I just want to share that passion. And uh, if you want a child that is happy in life, I mean, my parents tried to make me be a dentist. They wanted me to go to law school, and I, I, all I wanted to do is work with animals. And uh, I think over the 10 years or so after I started this career, they finally started realizing that, oh, my gosh, he is the happiest guy we know, but he has nothing, <laughs> but yet he has everything. No, exactly. And that's that's my story, too. With uh, I'm a professional drummer and um, not a famous one, not one who makes a lot of money off of it, but I make a living doing mm-hmm. the thing that I'm passionate about. and no one can take that away from me. And every day that I go to work is miraculous. And the, the worst day I could be having the worst, I could be having to play the drums with a headache, which just from a physical standpoint, you can imagine is, is a lot, Um, (laughs) but it makes me so happy and I'm so glad to be there, you know? Um, But since we're both in, in positions where we make crap money for the amazing work that we do, um, let me ask you this. If you are a person who just can't afford to go to Nepal or to, to go plant trees for orangutans or whatever, um, what are some steps that, you know, anyone can take to help with conservation? I think, um, I think people can get engaged as, as much as they want to. We have, um, 
we have people that sell our books um, and they're called my rhino warriors and, uh, and they can sell books. And I'm trying to get engaged in all the States around the country. And I, I will go do talks. I'll do zooms with them and uh, say a keeper um, maybe at a zoo in Pennsylvania um, might, might want to go to Nepal, but don't have the funds. We try to allow them accessibility to, to resources um, to get to, to do these things. Um, but people can, um, can get engaged just by listening to your podcasts, just by going to the zoos and uh, donating their, t- their time and, and effort and energy. I've got a lady that doesn't want to ever travel with us, but she wants to be our connection to schools in the area. And she does all my cold calls to see if, uh, cause I'm off on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So uh, there's always um, things that you could give of uh, rather than having to jet set around the planet. Uh, but, uh, and oftentimes all you have to do is take the initiative to reach out to some of these NGOs, some of these zookeepers, um, some of these people that are passionate about what they do and they will work with you to try to find uh, um, ways that you can get involved. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. That's great. Yeah. Um, I also think the one thing that I always like to harp on too is it's important to figure out what your niche is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm an artist, I'm a communicator, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at this. So a podcast makes sense for me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you've got these great connections that you've built all around the world, so you can go shooting off and doing all kinds of crazy cool stuff. And, <laughs> and I love that. Um, so tell me, let's go back to your uh, conservation projects and, and tell me about another one. Just pick anyone because I looked at your website and there are uh, like 50,000. It's insane. So tell me about <laughs> something that you're proud of. Um, proud of, uh, we just sent a, uh, a women's group over to Tanzania doing beehive fencing, um, in Tanzania with, uh, with that community. And it's our second all women's trip over to that country. Uh, we have a women's dance connection and they dance for us to try to get them engaged. We have men in the country that are retired poachers that are now conservation educators and we pay their salary to keep them out of the national parks and keep them from poaching. Um, and we have a soccer tournament for the for the young men, and uh, we we let them play soccer. We go and watch, and uh, the winners get uh, get some uh, something that they need for sustainability, like um, their own beehives, to so where they can uh, have honey for their families and maybe some um, safety from uh, marauding elephants around their their village. But that's a that's a great one for me. Um, we climbed Kilimanjaro uh, a few years ago. So I do what's called climbing for rhinos and I lead people up 14ers out here. So I guide um, these, these, these mountain climbs. And so we, uh, we stepped it up a, a notch a few years ago and climbed Kilimanjaro. <laughs> it's quite a notch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a weak climb. Uh, we had 20 people that left here and we ended up with 12 on the summit. So we had a uh, really great, great uh, group. Uh, we made $10,000 for black rhinos. That we um that we gave to Mokomazi National Park, and they were actually at the time flying zoo rhinos in from Europe to be back in Tanzania for a breeding program. So for me, that's one of those tingly moments that you know I get kind of teary eyed about because we were flying in rhinos from the Czech Republic and from from England uh, back to Tanzania where they could breed and have baby baby rhinos on Tanzanian soil. And as a zookeeper, you know you don't get much better pinch me moments than that knowing that you're part of yeah i had a week of climbing and i told one of the the volunteers that went with me i said you punch me in the throat if i ever act like i want to lead a trip up kilimanjaro again (laughs) 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 but uh, it was it was well worth it john and uh and i think i may be leading a group in 2022 back up Yep, that's how that always goes. I will never do this again uh, two years later. Never. Hey, here we go. <laughs> we want to go. We missed your trip. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let me ask you, what is your favorite species? Oh, my gosh. I've, I've kind of always been the uh, love the one you're with guy. <laughs> uh, I hate to say it that way, but, uh, you know, when I was working in Kentucky uh, at with the, the fish and wildlife department at Salado, I, I loved birds of prey. Uh, when I was in Alaska, I loved bears, you know, and, and I love big cats. I've just kind of been a tumbleweed of sorts. So pachyderms are definitely a favorite, but uh, my, my love uh, my whole life has always been the wolf. 
And uh, that's why I picked May. That's my birthday month. And I picked the wolf as that totem. <laughs> that right there is the perk <laughs> of being the author. <laughs> that is true. That is true. So, and I didn't keep it to the timber wolf. So if, if people love uh, red wolves, if they love Ethiopian wolves, maned wolves, it's, uh, it's very much uh, uh, across the board kind of wolf love. Nice. So where can we get these books? They're on our website. Uh, we mail them out to people. Um, if a school does a sale, I will just mail them in bulk and I'll sign them all and, and make them really special for people. I'll sign them for, for the kid's birthday month. Or, um, and yeah, they're on our website. And I actually, before COVID happened, I was traveling to schools and places all around the country getting engaged, especially like over Earth Day. Every Earth Day, I try to be somewhere different um, to uh, engage with the community. But, um, but yeah, just um, reach out on the website, uh, kacf.eco, and you can get the books. And uh, book number four should be out next spring. That's awesome. What, uh, what age group are they for? It kind of changed. The books kind of grew with the kids. So Elephants of Denver, I think, was like a kindergarten, first grade. They love the zoo. I think Narayani ended up being second, third grade, you know, about a different species in a different country and being a princess that was uh, saving species by being with man. Uh, and then the last one, I think, was like more like fourth and fifth grade. The Zodiac Kids is more um, more engaged with an older uh, audience of kids that really want to have a connection and be a part of, of making a difference. And I think this next one is going to be a younger kids book. It's going to be very short. And like I said, translated into the th different languages because we want that cultural piece, John. We want a kid to be able to read a little page and it be in English, but then be able to read it in Swahili, be able to read it in Spanish. And I think that's going to add just this new dimension. So it's a, it was much easier to write. <laughs> <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah, no. My, uh, so I have a son. His name is Miles. He's six years old. And um, I definitely want to check out and get him at least that the first book in the series. Um, but also I, I can tell you that um, – yeah, he he's obsessed with whenever anything's in another language, he loves it. And uh, Spanish is his jam right now. Um, and I speak a very small amount of Spanish, but like I had high school Spanish, but mm -hmm. that's that's enough to impress the heck out of a six. I'll tell you what. And sometimes he'll say something to me, and I'll just repeat it back to him in Spanish and be like, "That's what you just said." And he's like, "Oh." So that is a really cool way to connect with kids and bring something unique. And um, yeah, I think I think it's definitely important to show multiculturalism in in conservation because we need to make people care not just about the animals but about these other cultures. So you know, and what, what we've been trying to do now too is um, since COVID happened, is is maybe having these schools where we have impact, being able to be in touch with each other, because I think that. Um, that connection, having these kids realize that, yeah, they have polar bears in their neighborhood that maybe steal their whale meat and it's dangerous and they have dogs barking and sirens going off. But um, kids in, in Costa Rica, our February month is jaguar. And maybe those kids have had a jaguar take one of their cows or, you know, had some different form of uh, human wildlife conflict and getting them all connected for the, for the positivity of having kids in Alaska reach out to kids in Costa Rica who zoomed last month with kids in Tanzania for me is, uh, is, is just making the world a smaller place and that everybody feels what everybody else is going through. And maybe they all will grow up wanting to save every niche. And that's what I'm hoping for. That's amazing. So uh, your, your main goal at this point is to, to kind of raise the next generation of conservationists. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. I'm trying to, uh, I feel like I have a finite amount of time uh, to, to pass this on and make people care as much as I do, you know, and I want them, even if they don't become a zookeeper, I want them in whatever profession they go into to always be thinking about uh, green alternatives and always, you know, have a little bit of Earth Day in their mindset. And uh, I had a, I had a guy when I was growing up that I just idolized and I loved every time. He came to our zoo and he had, uh, or to our school, he had birds of prey and uh, it was in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, I got so excited to see his hawks and owls. And, you know, I was just the one asking tons of questions, <laughs> you know, every time. And, and I want kids to be able to remember me uh, as they get older as, God, you remember that zookeeper? God, he was such a nerd. <laughs> 
Aren't we all though? Isn't that the, every animal person is a nerd, a passionate yeah. nerd, but a nerd. Yes. I use it all the time. I was like, guys, you, you, nerd is not a bad thing. Oh, I brag about it. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any other projects that you want to tell me about that you guys are doing right now? Um, we're doing some stuff with sea turtles down in Costa Rica as well. We're getting people over there. Oh, um, sea turtles are one of my favorite animals. Tell me, tell me everything. Well, that is our August month. So, you know, we are trying to. Oh, that's something. my son's birthday. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we uh, we sent some of our kids down. They've been uh, releasing young sea turtles back to the wild. They are helping dig out eggs and put them in incubation nests and stuff like that. So we've uh, been going down there working with sea turtles as well. Uh, the communities of Costa Rica, it's been amazing. And and just starting down there with turtles has led us into jaguar, taper, sloth, quetzals. You know, so we have a lot of stuff going on that's really close. And that Costa Rica. You know, it's not not very expensive to fly there and you can stay there for a week instead of staying. And if you go to Africa or Nepal, it's really you need to stay for two weeks. So the uh, the Costa Rica connection is a really good one for us to uh, get some people's uh, uh, toes in the pool, so to speak. Very cool. Well, I don't know um, if you read the fine print on the uh, Rossafari release form, but um, you are now legally required to send me on one of these trips, you know, cost free. So maybe we could do uh, Costa Rica. And <laughs> no, that's incredible, though. That sounds so amazing. I, I would love to do something like that. That's so cool. Yeah, it's 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 been amazing. It's been quite a ride. And uh, it's ended up being my side job. My hobby is kind of taken over um my my real job so uh this has uh, become quite a quite a juggling act now so last year i was in five i led five different trips john wow. so all of my time off was spent in nepal tanzania costa rica alaska and we did a wolf trip up the yellowstone because uh, i only had one week left so we had to go somewhere <laughs> close but uh but yeah it has been just uh, an amazing uh, amazing avenue to go down and uh, quite a quite a game changer for me in the twilight of my zookeeping career. That's awesome. So I have a question for you. Almost every person that I talk to from a, a conservation organization, you know, it's Penguins International, Polar Bear International, Red Panda Network, uh, Save the Pangolin, Giraffe Conservation Fund. You're noticing a theme here. They're all yeah. one animal. And you're like, let's save everything. Yeah. Um, which, first of all, now that I know your personality a little bit, seems seems right. Uh, <laughs> but also, I'm curious, what is the advantage to that? Um, and and is there any disadvantage to doing it that way? Uh, good question. Um, I guess... Uh... I didn't know getting into this, how slutty we would be. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, I think we started off pachyderms in Nepal and it was elephants and rhinos. And then we just went down this, uh, this, this path that's led us into all these different things. And I'm just not a guy that likes to say no. So when one of my explorers is like, Hey, I've, I've hiked this mountain for you for rhinos in Africa. We've climbed mountains in Costa Rica for, for Jaguar. He said, I think frogs are really suffering. I'm an amphibian guy. And I was like, yeah, Keith Erickson, bring me something with frogs. And he started his own thing in Ecuador with Wikiri. And now we've sent him twice down there to do some frog conservation. So I think, um, I think the good side of, of being so general is that you can partner with everybody. You know, and and like you're getting ready to to talk with Terrence and Red Pandas. I mean, we've connected with them in Kathmandu. We have keepers that are going to work with them. So it just opens up so many avenues of uh, of partnership. Um, the negative side of this is that you're really juggling your funds and trying to figure out between our board trying to rein me in on uh, on me <laughs> me making it rain around the world. <laughs> I think they're like, oh, what are you doing now? Vietnam? That's not one of our countries. They're like, well, it is now. So I, I think that can be hard on the people that try to uh, try to rein me in a little bit. Um, so there's less funds for the species that we started off with. And there may be potential for like the rhino and elephant people to get their feelings hurt. You know that, hey, that sure, money. Yeah. So, yeah. So you've always got to worry about that. But for right now, I think uh, our community loves uh the engagement and loves how we're embracing everybody and uh i think uh over the last few days i think that's been uh 
a common theme is to embrace and uh, and to open up your world. Um, more more inclusion is better, John. That is a lesson well beyond <laughs> animals. Um, so I always like to end every interview with the Rasafari poop story. Oh, gosh. So many in my career to choose from. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I got to go with uh, with our elephant Mimi at the zoo in Denver. And um, they had a uh, radio uh, interview set up. And they were, they were um, broadcasting from right outside the elephant yard. And they thought that would be a good idea to put their antenna up and have this music playing. And uh, Mimi, Mimi um, kind of liked things set in her way. She was at our zoo for 51 years. Um, she lived to be 53. And uh, she didn't like birds. She didn't like change. So she had her, her little nuances. Um, so she was um, shellacking the radio vehicle with poop um, <laughs> one day. Um, and was really, really accurate, like a fast pitch softball uh, pitcher <laughs> that would fling it underhand and just riddle the side. And by the time they called me, I was working over in Hippos and they're like, could you come over here and make this stop? <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, so they had um, just a, a bunch of poop by their by their uh, by their vehicle and a lot of little slimy, perfect little circles from the boluses <laughs> where she had hit them. So I took a wheelbarrow out. We were free contact. So I tried to take as much ammunition away from her as I could. But I was like, hey, guys, it's kind of uh, it's kind of self-defeating because I have to feed her. She's just going to keep creating her own ammo. <laughs> so maybe you need to move a little bit out of her range. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That is perfect. Thank you so much. And, and thank you so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Well, that was fun. And I got to tell you, I am really looking forward to sharing those children's books with my son, Miles. Not just because I want him to care more about conservation, but also because I really enjoy reading children's books. And he is just a great excuse for that. You can check out the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund at K-A-C-F dot eco. You can get the books there, learn more about Dave, and see all the incredible projects that they are doing, and maybe even join one of them. They're also on Instagram at Katie Adamson underscore Conservation Fund. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if we were all able to live lives that left such an impact and such a legacy, even if they were so short? All right. Here's one final thought for y'all. Sissy Sally Sassafras. Sissy Sally Sassafras? Sissy Sally Sassafras. Sissy Sally Sassafras? Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo. <laughs>